0: there was one day i've no shame in saying it where i was the person rowing, and i just was so weak and i wasn't able to get the boat back on course so you just call on your teammates say i'm at nothing here lads can I have a bit of help next thing the person in the back might get into a rowing position and help so you, you kind of had to put up your hand kind of, because if i was to say splashing away by myself we're just losing time and we're not being productive and all your energy needs to be going into just getting that poke in the right direction
1: moving forward. Hello and welcome to No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. I'm your host John O'Regan and in this episode I'm chatting to James Morrissey, James has taken part in hiking expeditions across the highlands and the Andes. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He's done a marathon on the Great Wall of China. He was part of the first six-person team to row from Portugal to mainland Europe, to French Guiana, and then to mainland South America. The six-person team also rowed from Cape Verde to Africa, to French Guiana, and then South America. He was also part of the first mixed six-person male and female team to row across the Atlantic. They were also the fastest team to row from Africa to South America. He's also travelled to 31 countries, he's been to 6 of the 7 wonders of the world, Chichen Itza, Machu Picchu, the Colosseum, Petra, Taj Mahal and the Great Wall of China. His n- Next on his list is Christ the Redeemer in Brazil, which is also on my own list, I got as far as Copacabana Beach, but was stuck for time, I had to make it back to the airport. James, welcome to the podcast and where do we start? Thanks for having me, yeah, there's, that's some list of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a lot and I'm not sure if we even have it all. Let's talk about the rowing.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, chance my arm at. The Roman was something I was looking online for a number of years at. I was interested in the Talisker whiskey which is a race from the canaries to antigua which is in central america so it goes across the atlantic that way and next thing i kind of joined a lot of the forums got kind of involved in the discussions and kind of started doing a bit of research on what it would take to get myself into a boat and next thing suddenly by chance i seen a post and it was on facebook and they were looking for a a final member to make up a six person team, and I responded and I kind of outlined some of my background in different adventures and Ultra. and Ralph got back to me and says, Yeah, if you think what you've got, what it takes, we'll have you. And uh, it started off a chain of events that led to me getting into uh, a boat in Portimao with five others, and yeah, an amazing experience I'll always look back on.
1: So, you went from doing research to being given an opportunity how much time did you have before you had to make the decision that yes i'm fully committed to this i'm going
0: yeah so I, I kind of decided in november and they were always planning to leave in april so it took me very little time to make the decision uh I spoke about it at length with rosa and then there's once you make the decision you kind of have to stand by it and then came the harder parts which were kind of the finance I had to leave my my job at the time and looking at the logistics for when i return and looking at the logistics of even getting there and gear and then there's the training that goes into it uh i had to learn a lot of the technical stuff that's involved in in rowing which i've no shame in saying it i knew nothing about the techniques of it i kind of knew from running that i could stay going for a while <laughs> at a decent pace but I, I had to convert that into a rowing uh way of doing things and getting the technique and getting used to the sleep pattern and the shifts and all that. this is some experience.
1: Had you rowed or been in a canoe or anything like that before you actually got onto this forum? No. In in all honesty, no. Uh,
0: I would have splashed around in a small bit kayak and met friends and stuff, but very casual. But uh, I always kind of, anytime I got into a kayak, I was like, I think I could turn this into a kind of an endurance event of some sort. Uh but um as I say, any any of the forums I'd read or any of the any of the material I've read like such as Gavin Hennigan uh, from Galway or or Damian Brown, they they didn't have massive Rowan backgrounds. So I, I kind of thought, yeah, I can apply my ma- if I apply myself correctly to this I, c- I can make this work
1: yeah i'd have to agree that's no reason not to do it like the want is the most important part you could be the best rower in the world going up and down the canal but unless you have a want to kind of push the boundaries you're not going to get yourself across the atlantic
0: yeah i i just had that i often say it like um when when i really apply myself to something i dream about it and i was having numerous dreams every night about being in the Atlantic, so by the time I'd actually seen the boat for the first time, I'd actually physically, I, I felt like I, I was so familiar with it because I'd visualised it so many times. I'd, I'd read all the material. I'd looked at all the YouTube videos there was to look at. I followed the Talisker. I, I'd, I'd met up with guys who'd done it before, and by the time I was, I wasn't actually phased by the boat at all or the size of it. I was like, finally, I was kind of like excited to see it. You know what I mean? So uh, that was a massive part of my prep.
1: So you had the mindset, and then you learned the skills. Which is probably a lot easier than having the skills and trying to learn a mindset.
0: Yeah, um, I, 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 I just grew up as a child reading about expeditions and like a lot of people would be talking about Everest, but that was never really the kind of draw for me. I, I like the kind of the base camp mentality, the, the, the camp. And three years ago, I done Kilimanjaro, and I love the crack that goes was on in, on, in the base camps, and, and the the tents and 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 the hike and i love that kind of expedition where you're just you're a group out in the wilds trying to achieve something and that kind of really stuck with me and it was something i was kind of wanted to bring towards this and and that's something I, i got from it
1: yeah i know exactly what you mean and that was part of the attraction with me as well it's nice being out in one of these stage races where at the end of the day you're reflecting on what you've done and you're talking about what you're going to do and then plus it's sharing stories and experiences everybody's kind of connecting with each other and there's something really special about that isn't there
0: yeah like you're you're forming a bond with these people that you you've never met before and like that'll always be there uh, like w- in what other situation would you have two swedish a russian guy a uh, guy from norway and then this freckled irish guy bopping around in the atlantic you know what i mean it, it it's it's something special and uh yeah i i definitely know what you mean you kind of form that connection and it, it it was, it was special for me anyway. It was I, I, I think that was one of the advantages of going with such diverse people because we spent the first two or three weeks kind of interviewing each other, getting to know each other, kind of finding out what our likes and dislikes were, what kind of led us to getting on the boat in the first place. And we all had such unique backstories. And, and you know what I mean? There's, there's a set of steps that took each of us to get into that boat. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that.
1: We're getting a bit sidetracked so we're going to go back towards the boat. Getting sidetracked isn't a bad thing because it's probably a good way for the the chat to go but what is the difference between what you did and the Talisker race?
0: The main difference I suppose is that we were going from mainland uh, Europe to mainland South America so the Talisker leaves from the Canary Islands and heads for Antigua. Another difference was we had no opportunity to call on a support crew. We were totally out there by ourselves. That kind of this scary element like many people ask me uh, so uh, was there a support boat behind you and I was like no yeah it, it took a lot of mental preparation to kind of know once you didn't see shore you were kind of on your own and, and you kind of had to suck it up and and, and take anything that that happened uh, in your stride
1: Something that's just come to mind when you're talking about being at base camp and sitting around the for how big is the boat you were using? So the boat we were using was I'm going to say roughly about eight meters
0: long. I'm very bad at measurements. So some of the guys listening to this will probably laugh. But yeah, I reckon it was about eight meters long. And that boat contained everything we needed to survive for the duration of our expedition. So we had water maker. We had solar panels for power. We had satellites tracking devices. And we had to store all the food we needed for the duration. So a lot of the food was freeze dried. So it kind of packed tightly into the boat and we would add water to it uh, in the morning and eat throughout the day.
1: I'm just curious about the water maker. Is that reverse osmosis? Is that the way that works?
0: Yeah, so it's taken the water from the sea and it passes it through a reverse osmosis pump. It's great when it works, but uh, unfortunately there was a, it, it, we had a lot of trouble with it and we had to regularly use the hand pump. So it with the pump, the electronic pump, uh, it's kind of, it's fueled off the, the solar panels for energy, but um, we had difficulty with it and uh, we ended up having to use rotate people to pump it by hand. So the electronic pump could pump... 15 litres of water in less than 30 minutes whereas the hand pump you would two hours for one litre so it was quite quite a quite a lot of work went into making water
1: right okay that's very interesting because that's a lot of work to get a small amount of water because if you were working in a hot environment and you were trying to produce one litre of water you're probably losing a lot of the water that's actually in your body as well when you're trying to make water
0: Oh yeah of course like and that's so we stopped at Cape Verde which is an island off the coast of Africa and it was purely for that reason we'd um, we'd come into so many water issues that it was nonsensical for us to keep going we needed to pull in and we restocked in water but we still had issues coming close enough to French Guyana as well and to be honest land came just in time
1: Okay that's very interesting and I suppose it makes you appreciate and value water that bit more doesn't it?
0: Oh definitely yeah uh, I'm lucky enough to be working in an office now and I do go to the water fountain with a pep in my step <laughs> and like lads would be looking at me in the office with the big smiley head on that guy but yeah i just think we're so lucky you
1: know what i mean and it's strange to think you're out at sea surrounded by water and still you have nothing to drink
0: yeah and that the conditions can take their toll on your body too so you're surrounded by water but yet that's it's salt water and you start to develop these salt sores on your body as well and that's that's kind of a major thing that creates you know friction in your in your joints so under behind your elbows behind your knees Uh, and yeah there's a lot of chafing goes on and um, you really need to look after yourself after every shift and rub yourself down and uh, we used to clean ourselves with baby wipes and uh, yeah it was the best way to keep ourselves in good condition to get out and row again
1: but it caused friction with your teammates because you'd be that bit more irritable
0: of course yeah there's there's so much that can go wrong like you know what i mean we were having trouble with the water your sleep pattern is off you're you're not going to be you're not going to be in good humor uh you know what i mean when you're rowing two hours on two hours off and nobody nobody's getting a full night's sleep and nobody's enjoying the food but it's amazing you find joy in the simpler things when when it gets to that stage
1: and how did you deal with conflict when it happened on board
0: you row (laughs) Um, you put the head down and row Uh, we used to towards the end or towards the last 20 days we kind of had a morning meeting and we are kind of able to voice our opinions and and with that you can't be concentrating on the negatives either we we used to kind of name one negative and and one positive and you look forward to hearing everyone's positive and it's amazing how similar they'd be you know what I mean there's only so much things in the day that happen but um, yeah you know what I mean you would look forward to sunrise, sunset and then just rowing at night was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, I went for a walk there tonight along the canal and I was just looking up at the stars and I was like where are the rest of them because there's no night pollution out there. The amount of stars in the sky just lighten up and then there was this one occasion where we had um, these jellyfish were kind of coming alongside us and one of their defense mechanisms is they l- illuminate. So the waters lighting up, the skies are lighting up, it's truly a fantastic experience.
1: Sounds delightful.
0: Yeah, it, it it truly was. Like when I look back on it, I I just feel so lucky. And every now and again, you'd see a shooting star, or you'd have a full moon, and you'd be just the moon would be just guiding your path, and you'd be just. There was one or two nights where we had to navigate by the moon, and you're we just constantly looking up at it and how beautiful it is. And you, I wouldn't have the greatest eyesight; it's so clear, you could see nearly everything. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool. Now that day when you were having your meeting. Was there anybody rowing or did you all stop rowing to have your meeting?
0: Uh, We'd stop for, the meeting would only last five minutes between shift changeover. So, uh, yeah, everyone would just stop for 15 minutes and we'd kind of take a stock of where we were and and what was going on and how everyone was feeling.
1: What would the chances be of you all stop rowing, you're having your bit of a burney and the boat starts to slightly change direction? Yeah, it happens. (laughs) And what do you do then, call another meeting? Uh
0: No, I know. Um, so, if we're feeling strong, you kind of just row on the right-hand side. You get back on course quick enough. But, like, there was days where we were where we had some one person pumping water. We had run out of energy. So, uh we had one person working on navigation, and then we had one person rowing. So, you went from having potentially three people rowing to one person rowing. And there was one day, I have no shame in saying it, where I was the person rowing. And I just was so weak and... I wasn't able to get the boat back on course, so you just call on your teammates. Say, "I'm at nothing here, lads. Can I have a bit of help." Next thing, the person in the back might get into a rowing position and help. So you, you kind of had to put up your hand and kind of because if I was to say splashing away by myself, we're just losing time and we're not being productive, and all your energy needs to be going into just getting that boat in the right direction, moving forward.
1: Now, how do you navigate at sea? We're using a GPS, a compass, a sextant.
0: I stood well away from it. I have no experience at, it. but uh, Nicholas and Ralph are experienced at sea, and they, uh, were up at the, f- uh, at the, the navigation side of, the, of things, and they done a good job of keeping us on course. And yeah, to be fair to them, I don't know how they done it. Uh, when we had no energy, we would have went by the stars at night. It was a lot easier to navigate at night because they have the reference points at night. But um, yeah. So if if we were low on energy. We tend to use the, the boat's navigation uh, during the day and then we'd turn it off during the night and save what energy we have for the morning again and then it might charge up again. But as I say, before things got really bad, we got to land. So it, it all worked out.
1: From the time that you could first see land, how long do you reckon it took you to get there?
0: Oh, I think it was about six hours. So you're just looking at it and you're just like... But we knew that because we'd, we'd, we'd passed... Between the Canary Islands, we'd gotten to Cape Verde. We know sea and land is one thing, but it's amazing to see the change in the nature around you. And you could start to smell land, and you could start to see different birds. And this was three days away from the land. Still, you you know what I mean? You're you're so in tune with nature at that point because you're just around it all the time you can actually see the difference in the difference in the birds the difference in the water the water starts to get a little bit murkier because it's there's river water you know what i mean and then when you get to see i think there's a devil's island it's the first rock as you're going into cayenne and then we were so unlucky uh, when we arrived the tide was coming out that made it extra hard rowing but we were determined to get there so we we put in the effort we got there
1: maybe the locals didn't want you and they were turning the tide
0: i don't know then they 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 would have had to work harder. We were determined to get there. I
1: suppose, I suppose all in all, it must give you a greater appreciation for what the early explorers must have been doing and how they navigated by the stars at night. Seeing as you had an interest in in that kind of stuff,
0: yeah, definitely. Like I, you're 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 there, and we have like all the technology on our side, water makers and all that, and like they made a massive difference for us. But you're thinking how in the name how were they able to do this centuries ago like there's not just this, this not a new development man has been going across the ocean and you're just thinking to yourself how were they managing you can see how people fall in love with the sea if that makes sense there was guys on the boat and They'd look across the ocean and they were totally fulfilled. They were so content. Where I was there, more for the expedition nature and kind of the endurance side of things. But yeah, they'd look at the sea the way I'd look at a mountain, if that makes sense. They'd fall in love with it. And it was kind of cool to see different perspectives. And and this was not... Um, like A lot of the guys had went on previous sea voyages before. So um, they were well suited to the, the lifestyle we had.
1: Did you have any scary moments?
0: yeah for me anyway in particular i suffered dreadful seasickness in the first five days now we worked in shifts of two hours on two hours off and after the first four or five hours i just started getting sick and it didn't end for five days i i mastered the technique of getting sick and maintaining my rowan stroke (laughs) after three days and uh, yeah thankfully it subsided um but um yeah i I was like, I'm too weak to do this. And if there was an opportunity to quit at that point, I would have took it. But quitting isn't an option when you're when you're five days away from land.
1: Now, I wouldn't say that was scary for you. I'd say that's scary for the people around you, especially the person sitting in front of you. It was there any times during the expedition that you were scared?
0: Yeah, there was. Um, then there was another day where the um, it wasn't particularly that the waves were too high or rough, but they were going in the wrong direction, so we weren't ever going to make ground so we um we decided to put out the power anchor it acts like a kind of parachute in the water where we kind of maintain our position without drifting too far off and we all had to get into the hatch now the hatch is pretty small and the way i describe it is is it's the size of a of a dog kennel for the likes of a labrador and there was three of us four of us at one point cooped up in there and the boat is just rocking and you're like is this going to turn over or or what's the story but uh, thankfully it never turned over and um, we were cooped up in there for about 16 hours and i won't lie it was fantastic because i need i needed that rest after five days of getting sick I, i i think i slept for about 14 of the 16 hours when i woke up i was i was a much better man now to be honest so it was a blessing in disguise in a way having that storm
1: the other guys were they up on deck rowing Or were they knocking trying to get into this hatch
0: No we were all in the hatch Just just waiting for a pass I think a lot the guys slept for a long time too But you, you can't do much There's no space to do anything So you just kind of get content with your thoughts And get comfortable
1: If the boat did capsize Would it right itself again?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's the fantastic thing about these boats, uh, they're ocean rowing boats, they're designed in such a way that if they tip over, they self-right themselves, so that kind of gives you a lot of comfort. I don't think it ever came near subsizing, you know, a couple of scary moments maybe, but uh, by and large we were quite lucky. And that was kind of why we aimed to leave in April, so we'd get some of the the good wins and the, the ways waves would be just right for us. So that was kind of the logic, I think, behind even at that time of year.
1: And if you were to fall overboard and there was nobody there to help you back in, could you get back in by yourself? No,
0: that's one thing. It was written in um, Dutch, because uh, Ralph is from Holland, but it's... Um, it's if you fall out of the boat, out of the boat is dead, uh, was the the way it was paraphrased. And you know what I mean? The, the current trying to get, you need to stay in that boat. So we had harnesses that we'd use and the shift o- handover was kind of the, the point. So we'd pass the harnesses in and out and you were you made sure you were attached to a harness whenever you were uncomfortable or nervous. Um, during the day, it was quite you might be a bit more confident but during the night we always had harnesses it was a rule we imposed on ourselves
1: and that requires a lot of discipline and it must have been quite tough for a team of your nature that was that was brought together you were brought into a team with people who didn't know you so they were supposed taking for granted that you were going to fit into the kind of character that they wanted were all the other guys as disciplined? Yeah, to be fair.
0: We all had to look out for each other. Like, Dennis, uh, the Russian guy on the boat, he would often bring me into line if he thought I was getting a bit too confident. Or he, he would say, James, you need to not be so flashy walking up and down into your position. And when I say walking up and down, it's two steps. like. But if you take them wrong and your balance isn't right or there's a sudden wobble in the boat, you know what I mean? You, the important thing is we all get back to land safe. Like So, um, yeah, we were because I hadn't much experience at sea... I was grateful that the, the guys were keeping an eye on me and bringing me back into line and making sure I wasn't doing anything stupid.
1: How nice was the food? There's no way.
0: There's no good way. The, the food, it all tastes the same after a while and you're trying to you're trying to add flavour to it. Some of the guys had like some hot sauce and stuff that they'd add to it. I kind of kept towards the porridge. I like the breakfast. So uh, I, I, I'm I a big fan of oats anyway. So I'd, I'd, I'd make up my cereal. I'd make up two back, packets of cereal maybe, porridge, and yeah, I'd have that throughout the day. And at times I might... I, I Adding a bit of protein powder into it and then you're basically going off gels and bars then to get through the day. So it's a lot of sugar to kind of get yourself through the day. And did you eat all your meals? I found it very hard at the beginning because I was getting so sick. So by the time I got to Cape Verde I was able to kind of replenish myself a bit. And then I was a lot more confident eating from Cape Verde on. But there were some days where it was hard to eat because it's so hot or whatever. Um, so I kind of relied a lot on the, the protein bars as well, kind of keep myself replenished.
1: I think it's very important that when you start to suffer from what we call flavour fatigue from eating the same things all the time when food is bland, that you have to be able to convince yourself that what you're taking in isn't just food, it's fuel and it's essential for not only for your survival but to keep the boat moving.
0: Yeah, I needed to take on more. Uh, looking back on it, I should have had more. Yeah, but... That's kind of a hindsight thing, you know what I mean? Do
1: you know what your pre-row weight was and your weight when you finally got to land? Yeah, so from talking to guys,
0: I kind of tried to bulk up and getting onto the boat. I found it very hard to get up to weight so getting onto the boat i was uh, weighing in at 82 kilograms and by the time we'd finished i was at 69 kilograms i reckon i was probably worse around cape verde because i'd been so sick all the time so um but yeah i have no idea what i weighed in cape verde and i'm kind of happy i don't
1: okay that sounds quite a lot i would guess you lost a lot of muscle as well
0: Yeah, yeah, Rosa was able to put her hands around my bicep. I was weak in walking.
1: I would have thought that your biceps might have improved in size and your legs would have lost the weight.
0: No, a lot of your rowing technique actually comes from your legs and you're kind of transferring that power up through your body. But yeah, when you're not eating right and you're using that muscle continuously, it just, yeah, I, I, I just lost muscle everywhere.
1: And did it take you long to replace that muscle? Took me quite a
0: bit, yeah. getting back the first couple of kilograms pretty quick because you're hydrating properly, and th- I found, uh, yeah, I was back up into the 72, 73 within a few days just from hydrating. And then um I concentrated on doing a lot of kind of heat workouts and kind of bringing back some muscle onto the, my frame. And yeah, because I, I had to carry away in um, September, and I was kind of determined to do the two events in the one year and uh, yeah so I, I was actually in french guyana uh when we arrived and i was kind of doing workouts kind of specific for getting myself back into ultra running that's how determined i was to do the two in the one year
1: so you didn't have much time for recovery what month did you do the row uh, so we left
0: in april and we finished towards the end of may took 52 days and all i really fulfilled the ambition of a proper expedition it had its ups and it had its lows but it, it really ticked all the boxes for me
1: yeah you certainly did like that sounds quite an achievement do you think you'll do anything else like that again
0: i don't think i'll do anything to that extent it was all encompassing as i say uh, it, the training it, it was it took up a lot of my time the finances behind it, it took a lot of a, a lot of thought and then it's just so hard on your family you know what i mean I, when you're at sea you don't know what you're missing out on because the communication was quite poor at, at times. So you're, you're kind of worried about, do they know if I'm okay? Are they okay? And that kind of that kind of played on my mind a good bit. Um, so maybe not for that duration of time.
1: When you mentioned communications there, did you have a way of communicating at home? Or was that very, very limited?
0: Yeah, it was quite limited. Um, it depended on on where you were or how the satellite or w- was working or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I I try and aim for an email a week. But there was two weeks or three weeks where that was in, just didn't work. But uh, yeah, so you're just relying on emails. And when an email came through, it was just kind of a special pick me up. You you had contact with the outside world, and it was it was great to hear from your loved ones, and and you were able to tell them much you care about them and you're thinking of them and i've done a lot of praying during the night
1: actually and i'd pray for a lot of
0: my family and that's amazing
1: in Shackleton's biography South, he mentioned that he always looked forward to getting an email of a thursday evening
0: oh definitely yeah it's your lifeline to the outside world and it's some pick me up something I look forward to
1: that's been quite an interesting chat thanks very much for your time again and maybe the next time we meet up we might talk about your travels around the world and visit to some of the seven wonders of the world
0: yeah that'd be great thanks very much for having me and
1: best of luck with the podcast